So I've been excited for a few days now for a number of different things, and I'm going to list them in order from, uh, let's just say, from good to best. And the first one, it's on a different level than all the rest. I almost didn't include it, but so we'll call it 1A. And 1A, uh, or whatever comes before number one, zero. Zero is 14 kinds of chili wafting, wafting from the kitchen. It's not as good as the other things, but it's good. Now, the real number one is what I got to do at the beginning of worship, which was get to share with you that we're super excited that we decided to stay here and live with you and do ministry with you and serve all of you. That's number one. That's really good. I've been very excited about that. Number two is even better. Um, well, the people who it involves, they ended up being sick today, so it's going to happen in a couple weeks, but there were going to be a few people who came up here and said, we have decided we've finished the foundations course and we'd like to be part of this particular church family. So, Leslie family, if you're watching online, I pray you feel better soon. That's number two. Now, even better than becoming part of an earthly church family is what we got to do at the beginning of worship, which was watch God adopt Judah Tate Little into his family that doesn't just last as long as we live here, but lasts forever and ever. That's thing number three. And one more thing, though it's really splitting hairs whether this thing is the best or baptism is the best because they're really the same thing. But number four, I was excited to share with you God's faithfulness, God's steadfastness. And again, it's splitting hairs between that and baptism. They're both, we could just say they're both the best because that's what baptism is. It's God saying, I promise to be faithful to you forever and ever. Amen. God's faithfulness. Now, God's faithfulness to you does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that the life in general or the life of a Christian in the time in between when Jesus first came and when he comes again at the end of time, it does not mean that life in general is going to look like today with all sorts of joy and happiness and celebration and wonderfully full bellies. That's not what it means. In fact, Jesus made very different promises. He said things like, you will be hated by everyone because of me. He also said, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another, not if. He said, you will, not you might, you will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Like in the churches, the place where you should theoretically be safe, you're going to be whipped. He said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's pretty precarious. And he said, when they arrest you. Not if, he said, when they arrest you. And those were all in just eight verses from Matthew that I read earlier. And then you've got what Jesus said the night before he died. He said, he promised, in this world, you will have trouble. No, there's no promise. There's no promise for no suffering. There's no promise for an easy life. There's no promise for relaxation. All those things can be a blessing, but there's no, there's no promise. There's no promise that you will definitely overcome whatever the thing is that's tempting you, that you will overcome the sin. There's no promise for that for me. You might fall back into it. There's no promise that you won't. But there are promises. 
There's promises that God will be faithful to you no matter what the circumstances are. There's promises of God's presence. There's promises that Jesus actually died on the cross and actually rose from the dead 2,000 years ago to prove that you are enough for God because he took away everything that was wrong with you and declared you to be perfectly enough for God for forever. There are those promises. Right after Jesus said, you will have trouble, he said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's not, that's not even all. Like, even if everything would go the worst, and whatever the steps to get there, it, it would mean that we die. Second Corinthians 5 says this. It says, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, what does that mean? This earthly body we live in, this earthly situation, the earthly relationships that we have, they're all like a tent, which is what? Meant to be put up and taken down. Okay? If that's destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, one that lasts forever. And Daniel he knew all of this stuff. He knew all of it. Now, lots of children's Bibles portray Daniel as being like a teenager or maybe a young adult male. It's not the case, at least not at this point in his life. He had been taken from Israel to Babylon when he was a teenager, maybe 17. And he had been serving in Babylon for the last 60 years. He was about 80 or so when he was thrown into the lion's den. And he had been serving. He had been serving faithfully to his God and he had also been serving the Babylonian government for 60 years. And the Babylonian government was incredibly powerful. Also, they did horrible things. And I don't know how he did it, but Daniel served God faithfully and served the Babylonian government faithfully. So much so that King Darius, he wanted to make Daniel second in command of the most powerful empire in the world at that time. As you can imagine, because this happens, I mean, this happens in your workplace. This happens in, in schools. This happens in the world in general. The other leaders over whom Daniel got promoted, they didn't like it. They were jealous. They made all sorts of attempts to try and politically take down Daniel. But they couldn't, because he was too faithful. They couldn't find anything. They, they actually said um, they could find no corruption in him, he was so pure that they said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So they schnookered the king of Babylon into making a law that said, you can't pray to anybody except me. And whoever broke that law, they got the king to sign it. Whoever broke that law would be thrown into the lion's den which was basically a stone cave where lions were on one side, there was this wall in the middle that they could bring up, and you'd get put on the other side of that wall in the cave with the lions who had been starving. Then they'd take up the wall, and you can use your imagination to think about what happens next. That's the situation. So, listen to Daniel chapter 6. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree, this law, you can only pray to the king, had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. 
Then these men, the ones who hated Daniel, they went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. King, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Uh, I skipped a verse here, but what they said next was, hey, by the way, Daniel, uh, we found him praying to his God, not to you. So I added this verse in too. Verse 14, when the king heard this, that Daniel was the one who disobeyed the law, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. But he couldn't. So, verse 16, the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. Then, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent, in God's sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. That's God's word. Now, put yourselves in Daniel's ancient sandals for a sec, okay? You've been serving... God and the government, faithfully, for 60 years. Most of you aren't even 60 years old, but you've been serving for 60 years, and you've been doing it well. So much so that even people, like everyone gets political dirt found on them, except Daniel. They couldn't find anything. You've been serving extremely well, and now this happens. The king makes this law. The king who you know loves you. He just wanted to promote you to be basically the king yourself. And now he makes this asinine law that makes no sense. And you know who who made it happen and you know it's directed at you. What do you think? What do you do? I'd be like, God, what in the world? This is what you give me? Six decades I've been serving you, God. And now this is the way it's going to happen? Like, couldn't you just give me a retirement and I coast out or maybe even I get to go back home to my, to my Israel? But this, God, really? This is my reward? That's what I would have done. But what Daniel do in the face of pure, unadulterated evil, in the face of injustice, what'd he do? That is correct. He did nothing. At least nothing outside of his normal. He didn't go all incredible Hulk and wreck everything everywhere, whether that would be physically or with all the political power that he had, and he had a lot of power. 
He didn't do that. He also didn't go in the opposite direction, maybe, and go all Eeyore and say, oh, woe is me. The world is just, everyone's against me. I am such a victim. I deserve better. Poor old me. He didn't do either of those things. He did nothing except his normal. What does it say? It says, when Daniel learned about the decree, he went home. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. He wasn't, he wasn't flaunting it. He wasn't leaning out of his window praying and saying, hey, look what I'm doing. He wasn't flaunting it. He also wasn't hiding it. He was just plain old living his faithful life, praying to his God because he trusted that his God was faithful. Why did he do this? Just because it was the right thing to do. Now, there's nothing that in the text that tells us that he had any expectation for how this was going to turn out, whether it was going to turn out positively or negatively. It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't even say he was, he was pleading for his life. Sure, he asked God for help, but, but not, not pleading for his life. In fact, the first thing he did was pray a prayer of thanks. It's like he heard about the decree, and then he went home and prayed, and he just thought, yep, this is what I usually do. This is my every day, three times, look at Jerusalem, remember God and his promises, and I take everything that's on my heart, whether it's some sort of sin or it's a worry or it's a, or it's a temptation or something that's causing me to be anxious, and I lay it at the feet of my God because I know he can carry it even though I can't. This is just, it's just what I do. And it's like he was saying, because he knew this could end up really horribly and it could be the end of him here on this earth and it's like he was saying God you know whether I live or whether I die it doesn't really matter because either way God I know you've got me I don't have access to the footage from the ring doorbell cameras that were in the lion's den but if we could see them I wouldn't be surprised if Daniel slept soundly the whole night long. Maybe even using the midsection of a reclining lion as his pillow. Like maybe Daniel was lulled to sleep by the heartbeat and the lungs going up and down from one of the magnificent creatures that were in that den with him. Maybe, I don't know. But I do know that King Darius, who almost certainly had the best, most comfortable bed in the entire world, he could not sleep at all. Why? Maybe it was because he was so worried about Daniel and he loved Daniel so much. Like you, you, can, you can picture this when you're worried about someone else or you're concerned about someone else in a loving way and you can't get any rest. Your mind's just running. Maybe that's what it was. And Maybe it's because he knew he was in a pickle. Because think about it. How would it look if the president made a law and then the vice president broke it and got executed? How would that make the president look? 
And to top it off, everyone kind of knew it was a selfish law to begin with and a silly one to make. How would that look if the president did that and then the vice president broke it and got executed? Wouldn't make the president look very good. Maybe Darius knew he was stuck between the rock and a hard place. He could either, maybe, say, ah, forget the law, Daniel, you don't have to go in the den. Or he could keep the law and hope for the best. And he chose to appear powerful and not say, yeah, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have made that law. He chose to not sleep. Uh, it says, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. But did he really? Did he really make every effort to save Daniel? I don't think so. He could, have, he could have said, you know what, that was a terrible law to make. It was just selfish. It was just arrogant. I just wanted to feel good because all the people were praying to me. I'm going to null and void the law. Even though the laws of the Medes and Persians say I can't do that, I'm going to do it because I was wrong. Now, people would have been upset at him. People would have probably tried to take action against him. People maybe even would have overthrown him and taken him out of office and he would have not been king anymore and maybe he would have even been killed because that's how it worked. But he could have done that. Or he could have said, hey, Daniel, I made this mess. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you out of it. I'm going to go in the lion's den overnight instead of you. Wait, what? What kind, of, what kind of king would do something like that? I'll tell you. It's the king whose prince are all over this account. The king who, unlike King Darius, was never, not once, concerned with how he looked to everyone else. Because he was too concerned with trying to rescue people. He was too caught up in loving people and others and giving himself up to ever get caught up in worrying about how he looked to everyone else in the world or how he even looked to himself. What kind of king? Well, the one who, just like Daniel, was captured pretty much right after he was praying to God. The one who, just like Daniel, was sentenced and ultimately executed by a ruler who didn't really want to sentence him or execute him. But a ruler who was, deep down, a coward and sentenced and executed him anyways because he was afraid of what all the people would think or do. The one who, just like Daniel, was put in a stone den that was expected to be his everlasting grave. The one who, just like Daniel, had a stone rolled in front of his tomb and sealed by a local ruler. The one who, just like Daniel, in subsequent days, had people sprint to his tomb at first dawn because they were wondering what had happened to him in the meantime. My church family 
on the cross, Jesus leaped straight into the satanic lion's mouth so that he would never devour you. When Jesus rose from the dead, he shut the mouth of that lion forever, the devil, whose main goal in life is to accuse you and condemn you before yourself, before others, and before God. But Jesus shut the lion's mouth so that you can live every single day with the peace and you can say, no one, no one can condemn me because my king, he's taken my place. He's a king like no other. I am safe and I am secure forever because he is steadfast. My church family, that is the Jesus that we get to trust in every single moment of our lives while we live in this time in between. And out of all the things, that is the best thing today and every day. Why don't you all join me and say, Amen.